0: A scripture lesson is from the book of Isaiah chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 and this from the common English Bible. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins, and the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. A clergy colleague of mine tells a story about when he was a rookie pastor, and he decided to change the oil in his automobile himself for the very first time in his life He thought he would do it himself, and according to his calculations, save about $7 over what the service station would have charged him, but on his salary, and at the time, he said he really needed to save the $7. So he had purchased five quarts of oil, a filter wrench, and a bucket in which to drain the used oil, and so he carefully and gently drove his car onto the shiny yellow ramps that he had borrowed from a generous church member, and then proceeded to ease his way underneath his vehicle. Now, unfortunately, lying there on his back, he's about as handy as I am, all he could see when he looked up was a confusing mass of hoses, wires, and unknown metal objects of varying shapes and sizes. And he said he didn't realize that he actually said it out loud, I'll never be able to get through this. I can't even find the oil pan or the plug, and this filter wrench doesn't look like any other wrench in my toolbox. Everybody's going to laugh at me now at church and even in town, and I'll have to spend the money, after all, to pay somebody else to change my oil and filter anyway. Suddenly, he heard a tiny little voice exclaim, I won't laugh at you, pastor. Let me show you something. And the startled pastor looked around quickly and saw his five-year-old neighbor girl crouching down beside him, and she said, my daddy lets me help him work on his car. This is what he showed me, she remarked, as she edged her way underneath the car beside the pastor, looking up at the car now above them both, and then she proceeded to point to the plug, and she showed him how and where to place the filter wrench, and then with confidence far beyond her five years, she remarked, Now, you try it, Pastor. And he did, and it worked. And in the midst of another very confusing time of crisis and great hardship, a little child shall lead them, proclaims Isaiah in verse 6 of the passage we just read. In the middle of strife and unrest, often, if we're completely honest, of our own making, the author provides a vision in Isaiah of what the wonders of God's peace just might look like. For my pastor friend, that vision took the form of a wise little neighbor girl. But for us, on this second Sunday of Advent, that vision of salvation might look something more like a work in progress. After all, that's kind of what Advent is. Advent is a time to prepare for God's promised vision of a new reality. A time to prepare, of course, for the birth of the little child we celebrate at December the 25th, but really for what that child leads us towards, a path of peace. Now, our text in Isaiah 11 is a wonderful and poetic description of God's glorious vision of a promise to a people trapped in the midst of a frightening, terrible mess. Now, I know this will be a giant stretch for you, but I want you to flex your imagination muscle for a minute, and I want you just to see if you can make the stretch to imagine the setting into which the Scripture we just read came. I know it will be far unlike anything we've ever experienced in our recent days. But there was political corruption and moral depravity on every hand. There was religious leadership that was weak, and business was conducted dishonestly around their communities. Pride and arrogance characterized a false belief that God would protect the people no matter what kinds of foolish or reckless or evil choices they made. I guess we've always thought that way, I suppose. Elders and government dignitaries wrote laws to oppress the poor and the needy. Can you imagine a government that would do that? Prophets taught lies in order to pad their own pocketbooks, and the people, well, they were left in anything but a state of peace. It was confusion. Just two chapters earlier, in chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah wrote For wickedness burned like a fire, and the people became like fuel for the fire. Now, if that weren't enough, finally, mighty Assyria had become an instrument of wrath against the chaotic, confused people of Israel. Assyria was like the club, the axe, that was indeed lying at the root of the trees. In fact, they were known for destroying and cutting down and burning down forests. Reducing the northern part of the nation to stumps and brush and thorns. And that's why the imagery, it wasn't a stretch for the folks, the imagery in today's texts. And all of this historical background for this Isaiah text, I'll be honest with you, as I look around the horizon of our society today, I, I feel a little queasy thinking about the scripture and the parallels today. I have to tell you. For more and more, especially in the last few years, I will confess there are times these past few years I look across the horizon at the general state of the way that we treat one another in this nation and the way our nation treats other nations, and it almost seems to me that there are axes at the root of our collective trees, and we're the ones holding them there. And the shame of it all is like the Israelites during the time of Isaiah. Our path towards destruction is mostly... Self-inflicted, even though we have enemies out there someplace, most of the damage is done by folks in here. And many of our citizens have willingly made moral compromises, and the ones that hurt me the most are those people of faith that have made moral compromises that are the equivalent of laying an axe to the trunk of the tree of our society, the moral fabric of our society, For many have said it's okay to support political leaders who are morally bankrupt and have little or no relationship at all to the truth so long as these political or public leaders happen to advance their political goals or ideologies. And then we wonder why in disgust young adults are walking away from the systems that work in our society and they say they're so corrupt they see no point in voting, they see no point in participating, they see no point and playing a part in it, because it's all hopelessly corrupt. And yet, even in religious circles, even in Christian religious circles, I look, hoping to see something better, and when you catch me on a good day, I see it, and when you catch me on a bad day, I see the the derogatory things, like how compassion and advocacy for the poor, even in Christian circles, has been separated from what the gospel really is, in favor of something Jesus never taught about, by the way. Privatized, individualized salvation. Think about it. If we could make salvation private and individualize it and make it all about the afterlife instead of this life, who would ever really know if we were faithful anyway? There are days as a pastor in despair, looking around even at the Christian landscape in our society, I wonder... Does compassion matter any longer? Does doing the right thing matter any longer? Does justice matter any longer? Does decency count for anything? Does the truth really matter any longer? What expectations do we have of ourselves and our own character? What expectations do we have of our leaders? Should should it matter? It makes me wonder, what are our priorities? And on our dark days, it seems to me, the axe is not far from the base of our tree in so many ways. The things we try and convey to our children, on one hand, about truth, about decency, about compassion, and all the rest, are we now showing them by our actions as a society that these things are well and good, unless they happen to get in the way of, you know, winning some cultural points or political points? Our social points, is it really okay to compromise to extend this and set aside compassion and decency and a strong commitment to the truth in order to win a few squabbles on social media? I would submit that not only does this send a destructive message to the next generation, but that it fractures whatever sense of peace we could be experiencing with our own society right now to compromise who we are Then in addition to the incredible moral distress and the unease that we witness across the the, the whole of society, uh, here come the holidays, right? Yes, we love the holidays, and yes, the holidays also create some unique burdens and their own stresses, or we create them, rather. And in the midst of our incredibly crowded schedules during the holidays, depression and suicide rates run higher than any other time of the year and if we're completely honest some of us even in this very room know what it means to experience depression and the feeling of impending doom that somehow everything just might come crashing down on us and many of us here today know what it feels like to suffer extreme anxiety in a season that should be so happy so free from worry and yet the combination of the social mess we see out there and the hectic nature of our own home lives, our work lives, the financial strain that we place on ourselves in buying perhaps too many gifts or doing too many parties or going too many places this time of year, it all adds up. And so where is the peace we preach about? Where is the peace when we need it the most? The peace that passes all understanding. Where is The peace. So, Pastor, where's the good news in all this doom and gloom? Where is God's wonderful peace? I mean, where's the gospel? Where's the good word for God in all of this? Well, this text from Isaiah illuminates the peace that we so desperately need. According to this text, peace springs up from the places that appear to be dead and even barren and hopeless. The Assyrian axe did leave a stump of God's people remaining. Our writer called it the stump of Jesse, who was the father of King David. So the kingship in David's line and his family remained safe in Jerusalem, although only a stump of the great tree, Israel, remained. Fear and dread were still tangible. Enemies still surrounded the people. Discouragement was a common experience. Chaos and mayhem and confusion, this was everyday stuff. Nevertheless, from the most unlikely of places, from a stump that appeared to be dead, a very much alive green, tiny branch sprouted forth and brought with it God's peace. Now peace, according to this text, is very much dependent upon relationships. Did you catch that earlier? That's what all this was about. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard with the kid, the calf with the lion, the fatling together, and a child shall lead them, and then a cow and the bear they'll graze, and the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play, and the wean child shall put its hand over the adder's den, and nothing will be hurt on all of my holy mountain. It's all about relationships. Surprisingly peaceful relationships and there's something extremely captivating about the imagery in this text it's the same reason I think we send each other funny cat and dog videos of cats and dogs playing together it surprises us you know when animals just aren't supposed to get along and we see a cute video we send it to all of our friends hey check this out isn't it cute it captures our imagination but you know something Peace isn't always cute. Real peace takes incredible commitment and hard work, which we don't see that probably went into that dog and that cat that are getting along in that video before it was ever filmed. So the truth is, most of us don't want to put in the hard work and commitment to really build peace. What we want to do is we want to hear what we already believe to be the truth coming out of someone else's mouth. Because, you know, then it'll justify how we feel and the way we've already been behaving, and we'll have no one to make peace with because they, everybody around us thinks just like us. And the truth is, the division and the strife that we've experienced these last few years in our society, it's actually been there all along. It's just gotten loud enough now that it's impossible to ignore that, and to pretend as though we don't have stress or divisions. But by being honest about our culture, by being honest about our own parts in it, about our own relationships, we can change the systems that perpetuate what I call a culture of war. A culture of war? What? In this country? (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. Recently, uh, earlier this year, in an interview from April, former President Jimmy Carter pointed out, A documentable, just a historical fact um, that the United States has only been at peace for 16 of its 242 years as a nation. I had never thought of it that way. But if you go back and you count little wars that kind of spill over from one year to the next and military attacks and military occupations, there have actually only been five actual years of peace in all of our nation's history now, to complicate our own self-image even further, even though there is a deeply held belief among most of our country's citizens that the United States only wages war for noble purposes and in defense of true freedom, global public opinion in facts actually paint a very different picture. For most countries surveyed in the 2013 Gallup poll indicated that in their minds, the United States was the greatest threat to world peace of any nation in the world. Wait a minute, a culture of war? And a 2017 Pew Research poll found that a record number of people in 30 surveyed nations viewed U.S. power and influence as a major threat to their nation's peace. My point is not to run down our nation. I love this nation, and I love its citizens. My point is not to run down our current state of affairs or to leave us without hope. Quite the opposite. My point, I hope, is to cause us as a nation and as citizens of this world and this community, for that matter, but even more so as citizens of the kingdom of God, a people who want to build a better world, to look squarely into the mirror today, to do a bit of self-examination, and to realize this mess that we've been navigating our way through is not someone else's mess but our mess. And we have contributed to it either directly or indirectly by what we've said or by what we've not said, by what we've done or by what we've not done. We've made it, we've allowed it, we've contributed to this mess. And so to remind us that peace is not about pretending all is well, I want to say these things. Peace is about making things well. Peace is about putting the pieces together and putting the the culture together for healing to happen. Peace is about right relationships with ourselves, with our enemies, with our friends, with our families, with our world. Peace isn't just about talking to ourselves about how great we already are and pretending we're all of that. Peace is about being healthy. Peace is about being whole. And working for wholeness and healing and my point is also to remind us of this no matter how big of a mess this world or our corner of the world seems it is never too late to work for peace it's never too late to turn it around and so as Christians For us, the little green shoot that came out of that dark, dead-looking stump in the middle of the dark corner of the world was Jesus of Nazareth. And they named him the Prince of... Oh, and he came into a dark, divided, violent, war-loving world, and he spoke the truth, he lived the truth, He reached across the divides and brought people together from different perspectives. And he didn't do it by playing nice and being super gentle like some people like to pretend. Sure, he sat down with kids and asked them to come and keep no one away. But he also fought fearlessly in the community for the sake of the poor. And he did it by speaking the truth, by living the truth, even to the point of great and the ultimate personal cost but he did so for the purpose of making things right, which is a very accurate portrait of what biblical peace really looks like. Jesus made peace sometimes by putting people in the uncomfortable position of having to choose between doing what is right (laughs) or actually admitting they don't really care about doing what was right and walking away with their head down, usually. For example, his rich would-be followers who had gotten rich on the backs of the poor, like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, they were called on to pay up. Make peace by making it right. Sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor if you want to make it right and follow me. The blind were healed and given sight, but even then, sometimes it only came after having to come to grips with why they had chosen to stay blind for so long when healing had already come their way a couple of different times. The lame were given legs, but they were often faced with straightening their fresh new legs only as they faced the fears that had kept them crippled. Peace for Jesus was making things right, making things fair, making things equitable, and placing people on as equal a footing as was possible. All at the same time, that was peace building for Jesus. And friends, peace will never come as long as we pretend It's when we readily admit that things are dreadfully dead and dark and rather hopeless, kind of like an old stump, that we become a candidate for a tiny, green, leafy shoot to spring up where we would least expect it, bringing with it signs of peace, signs of hope for the future. Jesus was that tiny, green shoot for his generation and well beyond. But friends, let me ask you a question. What if we actually are the signs of new life and peace for our generation? I wonder how we could change the world if instead of waiting and watching for the new life to spring up all around us for us, what if we realized that we actually are the new signs of new life and the signs of new growth and the signs of hope and peace and love and joy? Indeed, most of the time we wait for God to do for us what God wants to do through us so may we have the eyes to see that we are as children of god as followers of the way of jesus signs of new life we are the ones bringing signs of peace should we choose to accept the mission to the deadest of places the crustiest darkest corners of the world where nothing but stumps are left may we have the hearts to open ourselves to this calling, and may we grow in the direction that this new movement of peace takes us. Amen.